This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Doug Collum and Irene Yen. Hello and welcome to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're coming to you live from the campus of Wharton San Francisco here in downtown San Francisco, right next door to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Irina Yen, along with my co-host, Doug Collum. And we have got a great show for you guys today. And we're thrilled to welcome our next guest, Wayne Ting, the Global Head of Operations and Strategy at Lime, a leading smart mobility company. Um, Wayne, you've had an interesting journey from entrepreneur to entrepreneurial executive. Uh, We'd love to hear all about it. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we'd love to share with our listeners, and our listeners are interested in your story as an entrepreneur, your journey. I was wondering if you could share that a little bit with us, um, your path and what led you ultimately to Lime, where you are today. Sure. Um, So I've been at Lime for about a year. Uh Um, And for those of you who don't know, Lime is a, we call micromobility company. And so we provide transportation options that you can rent, um, things like scooters and bikes and e-bikes. Um, and so I've been there for about a year. Um, prior to this, I spent about five years of my career at Uber. We were just talking about Uber right. um, in a variety of roles. I was the general manager for Uber in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. I know you guys have a focus on the Bay Area. Um, and this was, of course, where ride-sharing started. Um, probably the most competitive, you know, 20-mile by 20-mile um, radius area um, for ride-sharing was here. Um, and then I, when there was a, a leadership change at Uber, um, right. there was a committee that ran – Uber for about four months because a lot of the senior executives had left the company. Um, I was chief of staff of that committee. Um, and then I was chief of staff to Dara, uh, the new CEO oh, yeah. during his first year. Um, you know, before um, um, Uber, I spent two years at the White House um, doing econ policy. I was on the National Economic Council. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. I, I, That's an honor to be yes, invited absolutely. to join that council, isn't it? It was, it was one of the most fascinating two years uh, of my, my career. And we were, you know, I was there towards the tail end of the financial crisis. Um, but I, I was actually at, at um, HBS, at Harvard Business School, and I did a summer internship and randomly got assigned to the National Economic Council and also randomly got assigned to housing issues wow. and, um, and just loved it. And they called me at the, when I was graduating to see if I want to come back. And at the time, we were looking at, um, you know, how do we unwind Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? Um, I remember, I remember right. those days. Boy, those were uh, scary times. Those were complicated, yeah. Really complicated, yeah. And, and um, you know, and the, we, we, I spent two years on a bill, um, the, the Obama administration's bill, to um, reimagine the housing market. Um, 90% of the mortgages in America are funded and guaranteed by the federal government today. Yeah. Yep. Um, and what pe- a lot of people don't know is that Fannie Mae Freddie Mac is still in conservatorship. Um, it's been a decade. Wow. And it's still controlled by bureaucrats. And that has its costs. And, and the cost of a insurance, a mortgage insurance like that, you don't see until home prices starts to go down. And so we were imagining, how, what, what can you do? How, how do you imagine a future housing mortgage system? Um, but the bill didn't get out of the Senate. So, um, so we're, we're still here. Um, you know, and then I, I spent a couple of years before that in private equity at Bank Capital. I spent a couple of years at McKinsey and consulting. And I did a startup. Um, right. I, I, I did a startup called Campus Network. Um, and now, we where were, was this geographically? Uh, this is, I was in New York. Okay. Are um, you from the East Coast? No, I, I, my family's from Taiwan. So yeah. I lived in Taiwan uh, for most of my early childhood. And yeah. then I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, 
when I was nine years old. Um, I think that's a state. Is that what you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now. Yeah. yeah. My teeth are showing. Yeah. And, and it was a. Uh, it was definitely uh, it, it, a big. That's a transition for it's sure. A transition. Yeah. 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 It was a. It was. You know, I, I I couldn't speak English when I moved to Nebraska. Um, um, it was a, a interesting transition, but you also learn a ton. Uh, you learn a ton from having grown up in Nebraska. But but I yeah, I did it when I was in college. How uh, old were you when you moved to Nebraska from Taiwan? Uh, what, I was nine. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so yeah, so we did campus. Campus network was um, we, you know, it, it was a college based social networking site. Uh, we started six months before this other company called Facebook that a lot of people have heard of before. Um, and you know, social network existed long before Facebook, and it certainly existed when we were there. But none of it was that big. And I think the 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 question we had, which I think is a very similar insight that that Mark Zuckerberg got to, was that for social network to get big, you have to go small. And so we have to because imagine, um, you know, it's only fun if I if I type something on the social network and it reaches most of my friends and most of my social network, and. But if you only had one percent of everybody, you never your peanut buttering. You never actually reach critical mass. So what we did was we said let's focus on one campus and let's have a closed network because if I can get five thousand people to sign up at Columbia, I can cover ninety percent of my users' social network. Right. And so we started just at Columbia, um, and it was a closed network. And then we went to the rest of the Ivy League schools. Facebook started at Harvard. It was a closed network. They went to the rest of the Ivy League schools, and we went same, to all these same wow. business model. Same business model. Um, the same time? We, we were six months before Facebook. Yeah. Um, and so we were originally called uh, CU Community, and then we became Campus Network. Um, but we just got out-executed. You know, I think, I think they were just an incredible execution machine. And I think we, we probably had um, you know, the, our first version of Campus Network um, had photos sharing, had a wall, had wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, lots of things that, that – Ultimate had private messages. The original Facebook had poking a picture and a, and a profile, and um, and I think in many ways it was just it was perhaps too complicated. And um, yeah. also they we just our um, you know I think our, our launch strategy wasn't great. And then so when we we did it for two years and then ultimately failed. So, so Wayne was your was your startup was it venture backed or was it all self funded? It was self funded. Yeah, yeah. So we um, me and my co founder Adam Goldberg we left school. Um, and you know, we had before you graduated, before we graduated. Yeah. We, uh, we can't talk about that around here. That's, <laughs> that's, funny. Uh, yeah, um, that's great. And so you, but you, so you left business school, you left business school and started your startup company. No, this, this was an college. undergrad. This is undergrad. So this was oh, 2000. Oh we gosh. started in 2003. Yeah. 2003. And then we, we were, um, oh, wow. we came back in 2005. That takes right? courage. Uh, especially for an Asian immigrant kid. Huh? That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. how, did, how did that conversation yeah. go? <laughs> Mom, there's good news. No, there's bad news. No, yeah. the, good, the good news. I'm stay, I'm in quotes. Oh, I'm still in school. Right. I'm just working on an independent study project right. or exactly. something. Like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know that that and um, you know when I, when I was I was telling at the time I told my parents we're gonna I'm gonna leave school to do a social network. They were like, "What's going on?" And then later on, I was like, "I'm gonna <laughs> leave the White House." To join this like really really good taxi dispatch company, I really believed it. Um, and my mom was like, "What is this? You know, but, what are you doing?" Yeah. yeah. Wow. So oh, so so you're at the so you start your you're an entrepreneur. You start your own company six months before Facebook. You um, you're at the White House. I mean, tackling pretty complex national issues for the country. Um, you end up at Uber. Probably there's a, probably a story between that and 
the White House, and now you're at Lime. What drew you to Lime? Um, well, I think I, I've always been fascinated by big structural change and problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the same thing that I felt like I wanted to go, I had never actually worked on housing policy before. I was like, well, how do we actually fund mortgages? We don't have Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Well, you know, it's the same kind of pull that draws me to Lime today. You know, when I look at the transportation industry, it's a huge part of the economy. Um, for most families, most, most American families, is the second biggest thing they spend money on, only after housing, transportation. Really? Mm. Yeah. And um, Whether it's a car or, you know, the train ticket or airplane travel or whatever. I, I get it. Interesting. Totally. Yeah. And, and the, 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 but for most American families, it's actually the personal car. Yeah. Um, and if I think about, you know, my entire life, your lives, it's actually been a very stagnant industry. Um, it's dominated by the personal cars. People... The, there are 250 million cars in this in this country, uh, about 320 million people. If you take out the kids, that's one car per person. I think yeah. half of them are here in San Francisco. I, exactly. San <laughs> yeah. Francisco actually has one of the lower car ownership rates, and it's really? it's just yeah. it feels um, totally congested. Yeah. And but it's been so stagnant, and I think when what you see with Uber and now with Lime is that suddenly over the last 10 years, people are questioning: Does that system make sense? You know, do do we have to have this level of personal car ownership, 96% of the time a car sits idle, does not nothing. It par- gets parked outside of your, your house or your work. 30% of a lot of cities are taken up by parking. None of that, if you really took time to think about it, makes a ton of sense. Right. And, and because of things like the smartphone and what Uber captured was that there is a multi-trillion dollar market that's going through structural change. We're questioning, do I need to own a car? Can I share that car? And I think what Lime is also questioning is, is that even the right form factor? Mm-hmm. We have a a massive, bulky metal material that moving typically one person. It sits seats four or five, and it's expensive. It's congested. It's oftentimes um, environmentally unsound. <laughs> and are, there must be better way. Is there better ways? There different things we can we can innovate on. And micromobility is saying that there's you know for some instances and in some use cases the car is really awful. Thirty percent of the car trips. Um, taken are less than three miles. Um, 30%. Three miles is... Now, you're not way. talking just to San Francisco. This is on a national basis. Yeah, national. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, so what I love when I, when I heard, what I love about Lime was that you have, you have a company at this very moment, and, and I would say we couldn't have, maybe couldn't have done this 20 years ago before the, the smartphone, who's now part of a bigger, broader conversation about how do we reimagine this multi-trillion dollar transportation market that frankly hasn't been pushed and hasn't been challenge enough um and and it's and it's offering a solution that i think is going to be better and cheaper and more sustainable and i love this type of big structural challenge big structural problem so hold that thought for people just joining us um you're listening to business radio i'm doug Collum. i'm here with my co-host Irina yen and we're talking to wayne ting who's the head of global operations for lime and that's a, that's a nice segue back to you wayne which is there are people listening who have never heard about lime before I mean, in San Francisco, it's pretty well known, and we will become better known as time passes. But maybe you can give us a snapshot of what you know. What's the size of Lime? How many employees? Where is it, where are its offices? I mean, you're head of global operations, so I can't tell if that. What does that mean in terms of if you take a current snapshot of the company? Yeah. So, so Lime is the 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 world's largest. We're 
um, micromobility provider. So we're in over 100 cities. So hang on. Micromobility is a coined term. What does that mean to you? So we think about it as lightweight transportation option. So micro is to the, the size and the weight of the Got hardware. Okay, yeah. um, so if I think about cars, cars is heavy. Um, yep. Bikes is lightweight. Okay. Scooters is lightweight. Um, e-bikes. These are like lightweight uh, transportation options. They've, they've existed in many of our cities for a long time. Um, the w- one big part is that now we're adding, ele- we're electrifying them. So oftentimes you're before, you know, you have to, it's all human. Yeah. Um, it's like the Flintstones. You got to pump your foot to get from <laughs> point A to B. Yeah. <laughs> but let me, I, I knocked you off track. So, so give us a snapshot kind of a profile of the company today. Sure. So, so we're in a hundred cities, a uh, hundred plus cities, 25 countries. Wow. Um, you know, we, how many employees, um, are, our employees is probably around 600, um, but we also- first world across all these locations? Yeah. yeah. Every, all the places we operate in, we have teams on the ground. And yeah. that, those are the operations teams. And, um, you know, and we've, um, you know, and I think we've scaled this, you know, we're, we've been one of the leaders in micro-ability, and we've done um, over 65 million trips um, in all these terrains. When was the company founded? It was started about two years ago. Two years ago? Two years ago. And you've- Wow, six hundred employees, twenty-five countries. How many locations again? Uh, 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 over a hundred um, cities. That's that um, is that is hyper growth, right? And, and if you actually look at, um, you know, we Lime started as a um, as a bike share company, and uh, there's this other company called Bird that 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 yep. started um, scooters in San Monica, and we we got to scooters probably January of 2018. Boy, so this really is a is like a rocket ship yeah. in, in terms of the ride that you've signed up for in, over the last year for sure. It's been it's been truly truly um, incredible to see the growth, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that when you get on a scooter and you see the 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 change, the speed, you just want to do it. So when we we were we're about <laughs> you know we're about I would say ten blocks away from this. Uh, station and we were looking at a you know if you drove it was it was going to be 20 25 minutes in the middle of downtown easy and it was <laughs> five minutes on a scooter and right. we and not going. have to worry about parking yeah don't have to worry about parking yeah. so wayne this is a frank question do you have a scooter yourself i don't oh because you don't need to own one right because i i think that the part of the thesis and part of i think what 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 um you see is that the future is shared that the idea that the you know when you think about people spend Twenty, thirty thousand dollars buying a car, and they use it four percent, five percent of the time. And the reason they do it is because transportation is so critical to everything we do. I can't go to work. I can't pick up my kids. I can't go go visit my grandparents, and it's so critical. I'm willing to pay so much money to guarantee the four or five percent of the time I need to use it, I can have it. But the future, I think, because the technology is going to allow us to share hardware much more easily, and I think in the future you're going to see personal car ownership go down and down. What do you think is driving this? Like, there's so many, to your point, like the, it's a really interesting technology. It's, it's, it's um, satisfying a real need to get around, especially in the Bay Area, for example. To your point about your car usage, you use it to get point A to point B. Otherwise, it sits idle. This makes you more nimble, et cetera. What are, what are some, what do you say, what's driving all this growth? And do you see that it's fundamentally shifting like the whole transportation, quote, ecosystem? I, I, I do. I, I, I think... You know, we're we're still um, a year or two years into the the scooter, so we'll we'll see. You know, I I don't know if scooters is, itself is going to be the end all be all. But what I do know is that micro mobility, some form of a lightweight electric vehicle, is going to take up more and more of the trips. 
the, 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 that 30% of the trips that are less than three miles, it's just poorly served by cars. It's truly poorly served by cars. And, um, and it's actually expensive. And I think people more and more are aware of the greenhouse gas mm-hmm. uh, implications of oh, driving yeah. a car. And part of that lightweight, so much of the car, the reason why it produces so much greenhouse gas is not moving you. You're actually relatively light. It's moving the car. The oh, car is yeah. so heavy. And so I, I think when you talk to a lot of cities and regulators, they also want to move more of the transportation ecosystem, certainly that 30% of trips that's less than three miles, to something lighter weight. Because you know you drive around San Francisco and you feel the congestion. Right. You feel the congestion. And, and, and it's resulting in a lot of complaints. And, and I think... That's the that's the big structural shift that I think we're going to see. So, do you think? I mean, just kind of just uh, riffing on this a little bit. So, there's scooters and there are e-bikes and there are bicycles and there are different shapes and forms of scooters. Do you see the form factor changing going forward, or is that? I mean, it's you know, you talk about a scooter, which is you know, you put one foot down, you're pushing with the other foot, and you've got a handlebar that you can hang on to. Um, the question is. You know, that that form factor has been around for like ever since I can remember, which is a long time. So in effect, what, what Lime has done, or not Lime, but all these uh, micro-mobility companies, they've, ta- they've taken that basic form and, and wrapped a business model around it. So do you see changes coming in the form factor itself? I, I think it could. Um, yeah. I, I think one of the, one of the things that, um, you know, we're, you know, and when you do any business, you need to be open-minded to the fact that, what you're doing today may not be the answer forever. Um, I think, I think that the, the universal need that people are solving is this feeling of how do I have a lighter footprint when I move? How do I move faster? How do I move cheaper? How do I move um, uh, with less of an environmental footprint? That could be served by a variety of form factors. And I think one of the things we, you know, we started as a bike business two years ago. We saw the scooter and we said, okay. Let's go to the scooter. We're going there. We still have a bike business, an e-bike business, but that type of nimbleness um, and not feeling like you know the answer always is going to be critical. It's been critical to our success to date. Mm -hmm. And so if something else comes along and achieves the same goals, but it looks like totally different, we should be absolutely open to it. I'm Irina Yan, along with Doug Collum, and our guest this hour is Wayne Ting, the Global Head of Operations and Strategy at Lime. Uh, the popular electric scooter company or micro mobility company, um, and and we're starting to talk about how is adoption going, like the growth of the company. What are the th- some of the things that you've experienced that have been so um, positive? I guess you know solving problems or whatever. That's you know how cities are adopting adapting to this shift, uh, and what are on the flip side have been some challenges. Yeah, well, you know, I think. On one side, one of the things that's been really incredible is how global this really is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if you, you know, we're, we're saying that this only we've only got to scooters about a year ago, um, and we are on, you know, five continents. That's um, incredible. And, it really is. It yeah. really is. And um, you know, and we're certainly in many of the c- cities in the states, but actually, our biggest markets are in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, where. Really? Yeah, our biggest markets in Europe. Why um, do you think that is? Like, what is go- what is something about the European, whether it's culturally or maybe physically, or old ancient roads that are very narrow? What, why is the adoption seem so fast there? I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. One is that the the cities in Europe were not made for cars. If you actually look at the the cities that they're 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 designed for pedestrians, they're designed in the age of horses, mm-hmm. and so they're much um, smaller and tighter together, which actually. 
um, you know, is a uh, it's it's a it's more it's more conducive to uh, micro mobility. A lot of European cities also, as a result of that, really built out infrastructure um, for bikes and protected bike lanes. Um, um, one of the yeah. things that you know, if you look at these cities in the world that have the highest first world cities have the highest bike usage. A lot of them are sitting in Europe. So when when micro mobility came about, it was a it was it was something where there was a lot of people who. Um, we're already used to using other forms of um, of transportation, um, and we've seen we're just seeing incredible adoption there. And um, in in one of the things you know when I when we think about kind of a roadblock to further adoption is infrastructure. Um, you know the the even even painting a, a little bike on a road makes a difference in terms of the sharing that roadway. But a lot of American cities, um, we've only thought about our transportation roadways in the context of cars and um and that really makes it unsafe sometimes for people to move around for sure i mean i I ride a bicycle and it definitely makes a difference when you have the big green uh emblem on the road that says share the road with with bikes yeah Yeah. right but that's not as safe as a protected bike lane true Um, i agree with that so tell me so pursuing irena's question about adoption so when you guys walk into a city i mean pick a city what in u.s city now what is your game plan for opening up business there? So we for all the for for the cities we always first approach government um, and we look at the regulatory framework. Um, there's many cities where the regulatory framework is clear, um, either it's allowed or not allowed. There's also yep. places where it's it's in the in the gray zone, undefined, yeah. undefined, yeah. yeah. Um, and we always try to work with the, the regulators. Um, we genuinely believe that our goals actually dovetails well with the goals of most city regulators. They tell you they want to reduce congestion. They tell you they want to have more, more green options for their residents. And we go and we say, here is a sustainable plan um, that we think you should build into your ecosystem. Um, and for most cities, actually, a lot of cities that we, we've worked with, they've, they've Agreed, and they either develop a regulatory framework for piloting, um, um, or many of them say, you know what, we don't think there's a regulation, or we don't think it's 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 um, prohibited. You should launch. So they've been very receptive on, in general. Um, a lot of cities have been receptive. Not clearly, not every city yeah, yeah. has been receptive. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is a nice. Also, it's an opportunity to ask Wayne. So you're head of global operations. What what do you do? What does that mean? Yeah, so we should have had this question toward the front end, <laughs> but I think we're getting hints at, at what you're doing, right? So, so I mean, we are we have a hardware on the street um, in the cities that that is very very operationally heavy. So, in every market we're in, we have local operations team. Um, their job is to be the face of um, Lime locally. Their job is to pick up scooters, fix scooters, maintain them, deploy them. Um, their job is to respond to regulators when there are issues. Uh, they also partner with our juicers. Juicers are independent contractors who um, oftentimes go and retrieve the scooters and charge them at home and then redeploy oh, um, in the morning. Huh, yeah. um, so all these teams that sit all around the world, um, they're in what we call operations, um, and they report up to me. Boy, that's a lot of people and a lot of locations. And a lot, a lot of, of work, yeah. yeah. So do, you, do you travel a ton? Yeah, so I've been I've been on the road for most of the last four months, so it was it was, uh, oh, it was exhausting. Did you anticipate that when you took the job a year ago? Probably because it's a growing company and you know things are going well apparently. Yeah, you know it's a it, it's the, the traveling is a little painful, but the, the incredible thing is you go to a market and you feel the you meet the team and you experience the city and you, there's no there's no substitute for that. 
Yeah. Um, you can read about something, and it's not the same as being there and feeling it and, and understanding the challenges that each market has. Right. It's also complex with all the players. In addition to Lime and your team having third parties partnering to do the juicing, to doing the pickup and the charging and that sort of thing. So it's a really well, – what's creating a lot of opportunity, but all these other – these subcategories of, of businesses that have launched that would not have otherwise. Yeah, totally. I, I think the, you know, the, the, the juicer community is, is really incredible. So oftentimes we, we charge at night. Um, and what we found is that um, there is a group of people who want to, you know, they, they want to complement or supplement their income and they find a, oh, yeah. juicing a, a great way to work and it's completely flexible. Um, yeah. You get to choose when you want to work and where you want to work and how how much you want to work for. Yeah. Um, so when you mentioned the word night, this this triggers <laughs> a question that we all want to ask, which is uh, every, every company that's doing what you guys are doing at Lime has to deal with the safety issues. I mean, this is Darwin's theory in action, right? You get people out there <laughs> cruising without lights at nights against against traffic on high on something, and you know there are accidents. So. You know, my my background is as a lawyer, and so I always think in terms of liability. How how do you think about it, Wayne, in terms of your head of global operations? You've got all these moving parts out there, including some people who may not be very good at or smart or exercising much judgment about riding scooters in heavy traffic. Yeah, so, you know, we take safety incredibly seriously. This You know, we're at the heart, we're a transportation provider, and safety is core to what we do. Um, and, and I think some of this is certainly hardware. You got to make sure your hardware is safe and reliable and it's maintained. Some of this is rider education. But I would actually say a big part of it is also how we educate the city about sharing that roadway. You know, wh- one of the things that uh, I. The, the often, city or drivers? I mean, it's, it's both. both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, when people, people say, like, well, scooters are unsafe. You know, I, and I say, well, why don't, if you think, if you like imagine a mentor exercise where you say, what if the world just had scooters? Accidents and fatalities will go way down. Scooters go 15 miles per hour. It, it is the... What, one, five, 15 miles? 15 yeah, to okay. 20 miles per yeah, hour, okay. right? And it's the, it's the sharing of the roadways with a car that is going 50, 60 yeah. miles that has a lot of tonnage that right. makes transportation unsafe. And one of the things that we have to think about when we talk about safety is how do we share that roadway more effectively? Um, and we talk, we, were, we were talking a little bit about bike lanes and protected bike lanes. You know, it's a... It's a, it is critical because if cities, cities oftentimes talking about a, a future where there's different types of transportation, but they, we got to invest in the infrastructure first. New York was actually um, a, one of the cities that, that said, they're like, well, there's no, nobody's on bikes. And a lot of the advocates said, well, you got to create the lanes first. People need to feel safe when they move around a bike. Right. And they built all the bikes pre, before there was a ton of usage. And they saw micro-mobility, bike, and other so, usage So New York up. did respond, I mean, not to Lyme per se, but they responded to the need for uh, mobile transportation, if you will, bicycles. And they created lanes. And so they you, saw usage go up. They, they saw usage follow the building of, of infrastructure. And um, but infrastructure is really, really critical. Um, and so we got to do rider education. but We also got to do re- education of drivers on the road, um, you know, but it's a safety is absolutely critical. So, Wayne, when you're making decisions on where to where to set up the next location, you're making an assessment on infrastructure as well. Right. I mean, some cities, I mean, take Lincoln, Nebraska. My guess is maybe they don't have bicycle lanes. I don't know, but you go into a city that doesn't have any sort of infrastructure to accommodate 
mobile transportation like this. So does that affect your decision making on where to where to deploy? Yeah, so we, we, we have a couple of criteria when we look for attractive cities, and yep. infrastructure is one of them. Yep. You know, density um, of, of the city is another. Overall population, the number of um, restaurants and businesses, we think that's – we've seen that as highly correlated um, with um, use. And so all those things come into play. Infrastructure is not the only thing we look at. Um, and I'll say that I've always been surprised by cities that turn out to be um, – uh, great markets for us that may not have looked like great markets um, on the outset, and um, you know, and so so we also want to not have too much conviction. We have a kind of a broad direction, and we say let's go see it. Let's go see let's if go it visit, works. See what they say. What are some of the differences that you've learned from different markets that have made Lime work versus others, or just interesting things that you would not have otherwise expected? I guess from some markets. Yeah, you know, I, I, I one of the things that we, that's always fascinating is the markets that are really really cold. Mm-hmm. Actually, do really well. That's really um, interesting. In the in the summer months, because I think people are um, they they've been hibernating for all the winter, and so when the summer comes, they want to do outdoor stuff and they want to go and um, and explore. So you know the the Canadian markets and Scandinavia; these are markets that if I was like, well, but we can only operate there for four or five months a year, but they do incredibly well because people if you want to go out there and experience the sun when they have it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And what is your, you know, given all these changes, you're mentioning how cities have to shift, infrastructure really has to change, like provide bike lanes. I mean, in San Francisco, there's, it's not, you know, this city is, is still in the process of doing that. Um, what do you think these transportation ecosystems will look like in the future? Do you think that, you know, right now is car usage like 90% of families are in vehicles? Or is that, how is that percentage going to shift or that, you know, the allocation of, of transportation? What do you think it will look like? Yeah, I think the future is going to be shared. I think the number of people who are going to own a personal car is going to be few. Um, and um, and the future is going to be... What's the future? Five years? Ten years? Uh, let's say like... Twenty? Fifty years. Thirty years. Five, okay. I think, yeah. I think we're going to start... You already see young people, driver's license rates are way down. I was just going to mention personal that. Personal car ownership yeah. rates are way down. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, they have things like ride-sharing and other forms of transportation and public transportation. Young pe- and there was a study that was recently done looking at people, I think, below 35 and say, do you think a car is worth the cost? And the majority of young people said no. If you ask people 45 and above, the majority says yes. But it depends also on where you live. If you're living in San Francisco and you've got all these different means of transportation, that's one answer. If you're living out in a rural area, if you don't have a car, you don't exist, right? Totally. It, it's yeah. much harder to make this happen if you're in a rural area. Right. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but there's a... You know, I think our our parents' generation would have been it would have been unthinkable to say yeah. the car is not worth it, right? Or don't get your driver's license or rite of passage. But I'm hearing this now from teens or saying like, yeah, sixteen schmixteen, I don't have to get my license now. Wait, what? Like people yeah. used to literally wait till the moment, and that's shifting. It's shifting, yeah. and 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 part of that part of that shift, you're going to see. You know, it's so like, how do I share this um, car more effectively? Uber, in many ways, is a sh- car sharing. You know, so now have. Um, place where you can put your car on it, other people can drive it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sharing a, a, a different type of hardware. Um, scooters sharing is going to be the future. Clearly, self driving is going to be huge. Um, you know, when we talk about scooter safety, one of the things that we've become blind to as a society is car safety. Um, almost forty thousand Americans are killed a year by cars. Three million serious accidents every single year, but we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. right? So I think. Um, you know, you hear about uh, sometimes one accident, people want to ban a scooter. 
you know, that the same level of scrutiny is not applied to other forms of transportation. No, not yet, but as deployment continues, the assumption is that fatality accident rates will continue as will rise as well. And then, I mean, as you say, it it is kind of a, an all hands effort to get everybody educated that it's not just cars on the road; it's motorcycles, it's bikes, it's scooters, it's uh, even skateboards. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on these days. Right, and, and yeah. but but I think self driving is going to solve a lot of that, right? Yeah. Because um, the, the thing that we've seen car accident rates decline for decades in the last four or five years has been creeping up because of people are um, looking at Instagram and they're right. using their phones while they're driving. We haven't seen that kind of tick up until very recently. And so self-driving is going to be huge and then you're going to get different types of form factor. Cars is just not good for so many use cases, and we've yeah. we've come to accept it. We've come to accept, you know. I, I always I see sometimes you see on social media somebody take a picture of a scooter, and they're complaining about. Can you believe the way it's parked in the middle of the street? Behind it is like a row of cars, right. and we we've I become know. blind to it's the cars. Crazy. We don't see it anymore. We don't see cars on every street corner, every single part of your day because we're used to it. We've accepted that as a norm. And a scooter, one on a street, well, that's. Um, that's one too many, but I think all that's going to shift, and, it, and the, that's the fascinating part about what's happening in transportation. And you're you're seeing a lot of capital and venture capital going into transportation because people say there must be a better way, must be a better way, more sustainable, cheaper, faster way to move around. Apparently, there are some like-minded investors because I, just as a matter of note, um, you know, I do I do have to mention that Lime has received several hundred million dollars of venture capital financing. So um, there certainly is a huge cadre of investors out there who believe just as you do that things need to change. So here's here, my question is, um, in terms of, uh, I mean, I know you probably can't share a lot of this, but at Lime, or I'm going to pick on Lime because you guys are you're here, right? So you must have a vision. When you're when you're planning product deployment, product development, you're, when you're planning uh, global operations, I, I assume you're working against a vision of what a typical city will look like and where you call it micro mobility will fit within that city. Um, as opposed to, in contrast, the, the alternative would be your you're reactive. You're just saying, hey, look, there's traffic congestion in San Francisco. You know, there's always construction. Something's always closed. Let's get some, some scooters out there and address that problem that exists today. I don't know. Can you comment on any of that, just in terms of forward-looking versus reactive? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, you know, we have a thesis, and the thesis is that transportation is going to shift. It's going to shift in terms of ownership. It's going yep. to shift in terms of modes. And so the, the question for us is how do, we, how do we ensure that Lime is in a position to capture that shift? Um, and, and I think your earlier question, which is that are you, guys, are you guys so committed to just scooters? No, absolutely not. Because I'm not sure what exactly the form factor is going to be 20, 30 years from now. I know it will not just be the car. And I have high certainty and high conviction that personal car ownership is not going to look the same way. Um, I, and, that, and that's great because transportation is a multi-trillion dollar market. If I even think 10% of it shifts, that's huge. That's a huge Uber, market. Uber has yep. less than 1% of the, the world's miles driven, yep. and it's a massive company. Smaller now, they've had a couple of bad yep. days of trading. But <laughs> but, yeah. but imagine a, a, a half a percent shift in, in the type of businesses that was created. 
I think we're, we're you know transportation is so big, such a big part of the economy. If we even think one percent of the transportation is going to shift to micro mobility, that is a fifty billion dollar business. Yeah. Our guest this hour is Wayne Ting, who is a global head of operations and strategy at Lime. And uh, you're listening to Business Radio. We're on channel 132. So just as a segue, Wayne, to that, I, I would note that about th- when Irina and I first started interviewing guests on Business Radio, one of our first guests was the head of a um, – I forget the name of the company – head of a skateboard company that was motorized. And this is before the formation of Lime, and I was – my. And to myself, I was thinking, you know, skateboards, really? Is this going to be a viable business model? I don't know what happened to that company. But, it, I mean, I have to say it has been an amazing transformation just in the short period of time that Lime has been around. Two years for crying out loud. I mean, major changes. Major uh, adoption of, of all the e-bikes, bikes, scooters yeah. everywhere in the city. So I want to talk about you, which is you're, you're head of a huge – you're head of global operations and strategy for a for a company that's on a launch pad and heading toward the stars. Um, how has that been for you? I mean, you've been there a year. The dust has settled. The blooms come off the rose. You know, do you like what you're doing? I, I've really loved it. I've really loved it. I, I, you know, I love hard problems that don't we don't quite know the answers to. Um, and I think microability is exactly that moment, which is you know. What's the right operation model? We're, we're talking about what cities are good. I mean, we're still learning uh, as we go. Um, you know, how do we structure the teams? Um, and that excites me. Um, and I think the Lime is at this very moment where we're learning and growing and we're shaping a whole industry that I think is going to be huge. Um, you know, and I think the biggest thing that I, I've learned through all this is that never – Never assume you know the answer, um, especially when you're this early. Um, and the way we structured our operations team is we we have a very decentralized system. Um, and we have GMs, zero managers in many of our cities and countries. And I've always believed that. And the GMs report to you. Um, correct. Yeah. There, oh. Some of them report to a regional general manager. Yep. And we call them the CEOs of their markets, and we genuinely believe it. We want, we want to have decentralized decision-making, decentralized learning, good ideas, could be spread all around the world. Bad ideas are localized. I want yep. super smart people to make a bet on their conviction of what is the right answer, especially because we don't know. And watching the system, building the system, structuring the system, and seeing it play out has been really rewarding. Um, we came, we're, you know, we were second to market, and now we are uh, by far um, the global uh, number one player um, in every market we're in. Um, and we were able to catch up um, over the past year uh, because I think of this decentralized system. Maybe that's a nice segue into maybe you can comment on the culture of the company. I mean, my first reaction when you said you had a decentralized structure with a lot of uh, general managers out there kind of working autonomously was, I assume, with some restrictions on freedom of operation. But, I mean, that requires – it's a culture of a company that needs to be in place in order to make that viable, doesn't it? I mean, can you talk about culture at Lime? Yeah, I think culture is um, incredibly um, important. Um, you know, and I think I think part of this culture, part is also that, you know, when you when you want to decentralize decision making, you got to make sure that when people people don't go too off the rails. When something yeah, when yeah. something's good, you want to know is good. When something's bad, you want to stop it. And so, data becomes incredibly important. Um, regular um, report outs. Um, we have also people matters a ton. You know. Nothing is more dangerous than decentralized decision-making for people whose decision-making you don't trust. 
Oh, you want to make sure you have great people on the ground. Um, but when it works, when it works, you're more agile. You move faster. I mean, how do you launch 25 countries in a year? You launch it by empowering people on the ground to go to those countries. So that, you want... le- that leads to the question, are you involved in hiring decisions at, at those higher levels? Yeah, every, every single GM, um, I, I, I sit in every GM interview. Um, long, long run, it may not be scalable, but certainly now. That, that initial group of general managers matters so much. And our general managers have um, come from you know, some of the most impressive people I've seen. And I want to send them to Spain, and I want that person to be more Spanish than the local competitor. I, I want to trust that person's decision-making. Do, and, do you worry about – I mean, I'm just picking on an obvious – I mean, it, it is explosive growth and headcount. You're at 600 employees and ramping. I mean, do you worry about quality control? You know, I, I think I think this is why we're also investing so much in um, in the general manager hiring. Um, you know, I think A talent hires A talent, B talent hires C talent, get D results, and and so making sure because we're a decentralized world, and I'm not going to be able to hire the operations manager yeah. in Portugal. Yeah, we got to make sure that that general manager in Portugal is a true business leader and business thinker, can be the CEO for Portugal. And, and then we got to make sure that we set the right goals and we have the right um, data to track their performance. And we got to hold them accountable. Um, and some people don't actually turn out to be great leaders. And so all that system. But for, for us to have quality control, that GM needs to go hire a great um, operations yeah. manager. We got to trust that person to pick the right person. Well, I mean, I'm just trying to get my head around that because that's a lot of people in a lot of locations. And that covers cultures and time zones and languages and currencies. And it covers... It's it's amazing. It'll be interesting to see where Lime is going. We've got about, about a minute left. Where, where do you see this company? So now you've joined. You're on board. You've been there a year. Things are going swimmingly. Where do you see the company in? I don't know. Pick five years. Where, where do you where do you think is going to happen? So I, I think I think in five years, short of intergalactic domination, right. <laughs> I think in five years you're going to see a lot of the cities um, that that you that you and I go to a big part of the transportation has shifted into micromobility and you're going to see Lime as, I hope, the dominant or the leading player um, in micromobility. And then you're going to see Lime experiment and innovate on form factors. Um, so in, we're also, you know, clearly scooter, I love scooters, but scooters is hard if you're going 10 miles, 20 miles. Right. It's hard to be on a scooter for 20 miles. We're going to be experimenting and innovating. Are there things that are good for the three to five miles? And then eventually, I think the hope is that you want to come, um, you want to move around a city, you come to Lime, the app, and we offer you all sorts of transportation alternatives so that you never have to own a car. And you can move around a city with ease and cheaper, faster, and less um, greenhouse gas pollution. Wayne, it's been great having you on board. Thank you so much for having me. So this has been Wayne Ting, the Global Head of Operations and Strategy at Lime. I'm Doug Collum. I'm here with my co-host, Irina Yen. And you've been listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 